Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to our guest, Elizabeth Bunce, about her book, Premeditated Myrtle, and her work as a children's book writer. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. I am really glad you're here. I'm so excited that we get to talk about this career path for listeners. To start, would you please tell us a bit about yourself? So I feel like I should have a better pat answer for this, but I'm going to start by saying that um, I'm a native Midwesterner and um, I've been living in the Kansas City metro for the last 20 years, right on the edge of the old prairie. And um, in my cozy house full of animals, I um, write and I make things. I am a maker, a seamstress, a needlewoman, um, not, not a baker. There has been no COVID bread making in this household, I am sorry to say. Um, and that, I think, it sums up my, my quick bio. Well, that is a lovely bio, and it leads to the next question, which is, can you tell us a bit about your own educational path? So, um, sure. I I grew up in Iowa. That's probably a little earlier in the educational path than you were anticipating, but I've known since I was a kid that I wanted to be an author, um, and it it strangely wasn't until I was about um, 14 or 15 and early in high school that I realized that the books that I loved were written by real people as a job and that I could do that too. And that is the point at which I stopped, I promptly stopped taking math. Um, And from that point on, I sort of aimed myself in that direction. And um, I went to the University of Iowa and majored in English. Um, But along the way, I also discovered a real passion for um, the social science of anthropology. And so along with my English major, I had an anthropology major. And this was in an era when... um, College academic life was really starting to take uh, an interest in an in interdisciplinary um, approach to um, to various studies. So, so there were lots of courses in my curriculum that counted for both my anthropology major and my English major, and those are the ones that I was really most interested in. Um, one that pops to mind is um, my coursework in. Icelandic literature. Um, We studied all the great Viking stories that have now been put on TV. Um, And that, I think, was was sort of crucial to me in my development as um, a historical fiction and historical fantasy writer. Because on the one hand, I was getting um, the really solid foundation in literature and critical thinking. And then on the other hand, I was getting um, this wonderful insight into um, culture and society. And I thought I had wanted to major in history, 
but I couldn't get into the history class I wanted. And so my fiance at the time, now my husband, suggested that I take this um, Anthropology 101, which was Introduction to Physical Anthropology. And I was hooked immediately. I realized it wasn't history so much that I was interested in, um, you know, major political events, but anthropology, the lives of regular people and um, what existence was like at various points in history. And that has really formed the foundation of the work that I do and, and the way that I write and the way, the, the way that I approach um, the types of things that I write, whether it's fantasy or the straight historical fiction that I'm doing right now. And did your course of study offer classes, particularly on the craft of writing for children, or how did you develop the skills for that particular area of work? Because it is, well, good writing is good writing across all genres. Um, the skills of writing for children are also an added layer of skills. Well, the skills of writing fiction, I think, are are what probably was the least focus of what, of, excuse me, of, of the English side of the education. Um, at the time, there were not a lot of undergraduate fiction courses um, available at the University of Iowa because the focus, of course, is on the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is the graduate program. And um, so I did take what I could and realized very quickly that not only was I the only children's writer, I was the only fantasy writer. Um, and so I did feel a little bit out of step with the other students as we were studying. Um, but there's always a value in communing with other writers about writing and particularly in reading outside your own genre, um, reading widely, and as you say, studying the craft of good writing in whatever form that it might take. So I think a lot of the study that I've done in terms of writing for children has actually happened outside of the classroom. Um, I think there are more programs, more resources available now than maybe there were um, back when I was studying. I'm always studying. We're all always studying. We're all always learning our craft. But I mean, back in when I was in college. Um, so, so nowadays, well, probably it's been around forever. Um, I just wasn't aware of it at the time. There's um, the Vermont College has a has a very highly respected um, graduate program for children's writers, um, and and that is something that they have. A, it's a low residency program, and if if you're interested in pursuing sort of an advanced degree, um, they they offer a master's of fine arts in creative writing for children. But that was not my path. My path involved. Um, finishing college and being a little bit, frankly, I was burnt out. Um, I had had a, a double major um, packed with credits. I wanted to learn as much as I could every minute I was in school. And um, at the same time, my fiance was going through law school and it felt like I was going through law school at the same time. And so by the time 
that four very intense years ended, I needed a break. And I also was uncertain about what I wanted to pursue in terms of graduate study, whether I wanted to continue on um, studying literature at a graduate level or whether I wanted to go into anthropology, archaeology, forensic anthropology, or even I had a minor in museum studies. And all of those decisions would have meant heading off in a different direction geographically, financially. Um, and I, I was ready to write. So um, when we graduated, uh, I got married and I um, took my very portable career across country to um, the Portland, Oregon area where my husband started his law career. And while he was a young lawyer, I was a young writer. And um, it has worked out really brilliantly since then. I've done some um, early on, I did some technical writing um, as, as sort of a, a, a money maker because it does take quite a bit of time to support yourself before you get published. So, so I did that for a while, but I haven't done that in many years and I haven't had to do that in many years. Um, but I will say that if you are interested in a career as a technical writer, English and anthropology is probably not the strongest foundation for that. I think communications and journalism, you'll have a better shot at getting, getting jobs. So if you can take us back to the leap then uh, from writing that you knew for sure was going to pay you to getting your first novel out there, um, what was the path to getting your first book published like? Well, it was a long path um, because as, as with any skill, um, it can take, what, what do they say, like 10,000 hours of practice Um which, which amounts, I think, I think before the days of self-publishing, the average was something like it took most writers about 10 years to produce something that was really strong enough to be published. And um, if I was better at math, I could do that calculation. But I, I think it was, it was something similar for me. So I had written, I was writing constantly, um, I considered it my career. I considered it my job. I tried to treat it as my job um, even before I was published. And I had projects in mind and I, um, you know, I had finished at least one novel, many, many parts of novels, some short stories um, until in 2002, an idea popped into my head for a retelling of the fairy tale Rumpelstiltskin. And as soon as I had it, I did something I had never done before. And that was, I told my husband about it. And I said, I think I have a really good idea. And I said, I want to do a retelling of Rumpelstiltskin set in a woolen mill. And he said, that is a good idea. And I said, I thought so too. And so that was the book, A Curse Dark is Gold, which was my first published novel. And that book took, so 2002 is when I started writing it. And 2008 is when it came out. But it sat, it went through the publication process was several years of that. So I think that I sold the book in 2005 and it just took another 
you know, two and a half years um, to make it through the editorial and publication and marketing process before it actually was released. So I write long books with a lot of research and background that goes into them. So um, they do take a little bit of time. Um, and there, there's also a, a sense of the slow burn of ideas um, that I like. You know, it might take nine months for those plot threads to finally tie together. And um, so that is sort of explains the, the length of time to, to write a book. You know, we always say that a book takes, how long does it take to write a book? As long as it takes. So, so the leap to, I will admit that there was not a tremendous, for me, in my situation, it didn't feel like a tremendous financial risk um, because the technical writing gigs that I was getting were um, few and far between. And so I really had the benefit of a second income in my household that could support us while I was getting my career off the ground. And um, I know that's not an option for everybody, but I feel incredibly fortunate that it was there when we needed it. And that I had an incredibly supportive partnership um, in my husband that, you know, I could not ask for a stronger cheerleader. Um, first fan, first reader. And um, it's been fantastic. That is one of my questions uh, about the writing life. It is solitary. You have to have uninterrupted time. You have to be able to sit with what I call um, my imaginary friends, you know, and play with them on the page and see see how it's going to go. Um, but too much solitary time becomes defeating. We need a community when we write. Whatever field we write in, whatever genre we write for, whether it's strictly academic writing, whether we do creative writing, we still need a community um, of like-minded writers. How did you find and build a, a writing support community? So around the time that I was working on Curse, um, A Curse Dark is Gold, the Rumpelstiltskin story, I was getting to a point in my life that felt like a crossroads. And I think a lot of women get to this point. Um, and I was getting close to being 30 and I had neither a full-time flourishing career yet, nor did I have children. And I thought I need, I needed to achieve something to really focus on, um, one one of those things and and I had always known that that writing was going to be my focus and um so I decided I was going to buckle down and figure out what I needed to do to get published and I actually lucked into a book and I'm sorry I'm turning around right now to look at my bookshelf so give me one second okay I found a book at either a garage sale or half price books or someone gave it to me. It was a book um, published in the 90s or late 90s on called Writing for Young Adults. And I knew that was what I was trying to do. And it mentioned SCBWI, which is the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. 
I had never heard of this group, but I immediately went online and found them. And I discovered that there wasn't a chapter um, close to us in Kansas City at the time, but there was an internet message board. And I was very comfortable with internet message boards because they had been a large part, as you say, of my community building um, with um, other needle women. And um, at the time we had a retired racing greyhound. And so I was on a board for retired racing greyhounds. And um, so I joined SCBWI and I joined their message boards and I found some other writers here in Kansas City and they clued me in to an organization for children's writers in the Kansas City Metro that has been going on since the mid 1980s. Um, excuse me, the name of the group now is Juvenile Writers. No, I'm sorry, that's the original name, Juvenile Writers of Kansas City. The name now is Heartland Writers for Kids and Teens. And I immediately, immediately started attending meetings of, of the local chapter, or the only chapter of that group. We, we, I uh, started going, um, they have met continuously since on Wednesday mornings, they have a critique group. And you, now we're doing it by Zoom um, since the pandemic. And it's, it's hard to say whether we'll go back to in-person meetings, although we all really desperately miss seeing each other and, and passing out manuscripts. But our moderator, Judy Hyde, um, reads every manuscript aloud cold. And it's brilliant. You know, when you, when you constantly hear your own work inside your own head, it sounds perfect. But when someone who's never looked at your sentences before reads them aloud, you can immediately tell whether, whether they're awkward or clunky or sound right, or you've used um, too many ings in a paragraph, or um, you used the word look 11 times in two pages. So, um, and, and so they are, they're the Wednesday morning group that I thank in the acknowledgements to premeditated Myrtle, because that process, um, Myrtle is the only book that I ever brought every single chapter to group week by week as I was writing it. Um, the process of bringing a novel through a, week, a weekly critique group can be kind of daunting um, because it's a little bit challenging to get a sense of the pacing of the book. So any it necessarily makes the pacing feel much more protracted and, and slow and and plotting, even if that's not really the case on the page. You know, if you had the whole manuscript in your hand to read in one sitting, it would feel a lot quicker. Um, but the value of having that community, having that group of fellow writers um, of all levels, we have members who have, who are writing their very first pieces of prose or poetry ever in their lives. We have people who are highly published. One of our members um, has been the poet laureate of the state of Kansas. So we are at all levels of our craft and writing every genre of work for young readers from um, 
picture books and poetry for the youngest of young readers, um, well up into young adult. So that, um, I, I would say that's probably been the biggest blessing of my writing career is having that local group. And of course, now there are, are so many places to reach out to fellow writers online. And, um, you know, every time I do a conference, every time I'm on a panel, I, I meet new writers and um, continue to build that, that sense of community and a sense of um, we're all in this very strange boat together. Um, right now, I've made my very first foreign sales, which involves so much confusing tax material. And like I said, I stopped taking math when I was 15. So um, the wading through the 18 pages of instructions for the foreign tax manual, it's really nice to have um, other people to say, hey, how does this work again? Um, and, you know, my, my agent sent my manuscript out um, two weeks ago, we haven't heard anything yet. And I'm dying of suspense. Can someone help that that sort of thing is lovely. So you've spoken about the community in your home that you are very well partnered with a supportive husband. And it sounds like you have a good workspace there in your home with books and the quiet you need to work. Yes, it's have my bedroom. <laughs> there you go. And you have your local writing community. You've joined the international organization SCBWI. Um, and now you've touched on another piece that is often part of a writer's support group, which is having an agent and an agency. And you you thank them in, in the final back matter of the book. And you thank the uh, Aaron Murphy Literary Agency. Can you talk a bit about the path to getting an agent and why that's part of your support system? Because not all children's book writers and not all writers of, of any genre, name the genre, do have an agent. So I have been, now I, I will admit that in the last 15 years since I have been publishing, the field of publishing has changed dramatically. Um, when I started in, in, well, let's say 2002, when I started writing Curse, there, there was no Kindle. There was no, people who self-published, self-published memoirs and local interest recipe books. And it, it was um, looked down on a little bit by people who were traditionally published because you don't have that sort of editorial process with all of the gatekeepers that you have to go through. Well, that has completely changed. And the world of um, publishing is so much more populist and democratic now that we have um, so many more opportunities for more people to get their voices out there. Um, but it also means the marketplace is more crowded. And in the last few years, particularly, um, actually, we just got news within the last week or so um, that as in every business, the, the number of publishing houses keeps shrinking. They keep buying each other and um, compressing. I'm not thinking of the word that I want, but but you know when when multiple companies that used to be separate are now part of one entity, um, that means the loss of editors and sometimes um, a, a more competitive marketplace when when a publisher is putting out books that might compete with each other. And so, having a knowledgeable 
business partner who can navigate those aspects of things, I've found invaluable. So when when I started, um, I thought I wanted an agent because I didn't really feel comfortable approaching editors on my own. Um, but it turns out I'm actually really good at that part and I really like meeting new editors. And, and um, so having the agent as a business partner um, is, is really nice because it allows an author to focus on, excuse me, more of the craft as you're working um, because that's really, that's the nuts and bolts of what we do is, um, you know, the, the selling a manuscript, negotiating contracts, those are all a huge part of the business side of being a professional writer, um, an, an author. Um, but it's not a fun part. And it's not, it's a part that takes a huge amount of energy and knowledge and wisdom and experience. And all of that takes away from the already sort of energy sapping part of um, that is making wonderful books. So how I got my agent time was I met her at a conference. And that is a very common way of making those connections in the um, children's literature world and um, other parts of traditional publishing. Um, organizations like SCBWI regularly put on um, national and regional conferences that bring in national talent, editors, agents, other authors. And at those events, often the editors and agents who attend will accept brief submissions. Um, they'll either accept complete submissions from the agent, from the, from the participants. So for example, my agency, um, the Aaron Murphy Literary Agency is a closed agency. So you can't just blindly submit to them. But if you go to a conference where one of the agents is on the faculty, then you have um, an invitation to submit to them. And um, I met Aaron at a conference that we held here in Kansas City in 2004. And she read part of um, Curse, which was then called Charlotte Miller. And now she and I tell this story differently. She says that she read the manuscript and she, she really enjoyed my partial, which is like your first three chapters and a synopsis and maybe a little query letter that explains, sort of introduce, introduces yourself and your project to the editor or agent who's looking at it. So she had read my partial and says that, you know, and she really enjoyed it and she had lovely things to say about it. And the way Aaron tells the story, I said I wasn't ready for an agent that seems like a colossally foolish thing to say to an agent. And I can't imagine that I said it, but I walked away from that meeting um, with very positive feedback from her, but no deal. 
Um, but I realized how much I loved, it had been my first writer's conference and I realized how much I loved um, the energy, the excitement, the communion with other authors and with meeting people in the business, on the business side, the editors and the agents. Um, so I immediately started signing up for as many writing conferences as I could find in places where I would be likely to travel. And at another SCBWI regional conference, this one is, was in Arizona in 2005, I met um, Cheryl Klein, who was with Scholastic, who would become my first editor. She also read a partial of um, Curse and said, so, so backtracking just a slight bit here, the conventional wisdom, every author, every aspiring author is told, don't bring your full manuscript to the conference because no one is going to read it. You, you have to wait to be invited. Um, and, and I am a very, very conscientious rule following person. So of course I only brought what I was told to bring, which was my partial. And I had a critique with Cheryl Klein. And what she said was, do you have the rest of the manuscript? I would, I would love to read it on the plane home. I was like, no. oh my goodness. Sorry. I said, oh my goodness. <laughs> no, I don't have the rest of the manuscript because everyone says not to do that. So from that point, Cheryl would email me every couple of months asking me if I was finished with the book yet. And when I finally was finished, I sent it off to her and... Somehow around that same time, I had submitted another project to Aaron Murphy and we got, so that was sort of, sort of the, the too long didn't read part of the story is I went to conferences. I met an agent. I met an editor. They liked my work. They invited me to submit and we all ended up working together on um, on my first three books were with Scholastic and um, they were with a, as, as we were talking about the consolidation of um, publishing companies and, and how businesses change and evolve. Um, those books were with the imprint Arthur A. Levine books at Scholastic, which no longer exists because um, Cheryl left to become the editorial director at Lee and Lowe. And then Arthur left to found a new publishing house of his own. Um, and so those books are now sort of orphans um, at Scholastic. I, I don't have an editor or really even a contact person anymore over there, but I have a new publisher now um, who was found for me by my agent for the Myrtle Hardcastle Mysteries. And um, that has been... Um, so it's like in any corporate life, moving from company to company, um, the culture is very different and, um, you know, your coworkers really matter. And um, even if you only email your coworkers every six weeks or so, that those relationships um, can really make or break your career. That's a fantastic story. Um, people who know the children's uh, lit world will be really interested because the names that you just named are luminaries basically. So, well, so uh, let me name another one. My current <laughs> editor is Elise Howard. 
Um, and I'm not sure she gets quite as much um, buzz um, around her name, but she is um, first class all the way. She's been in the business. Um, she, she talks about being a little baby editor back in the 80s, and, and I'm thinking I was in fifth grade then. Yeah, so she, so she worked on the the Babysitters Club books. She um, worked with Brett Helquist and and Daniel Handler on the series of Unfortunate Events books. Um, all through a long and amazing career at HarperCollins, before um, she founded a children's imprint at Algonquin Books, um, and so they have been publishing children's books. I think. I think she founded the imprint in 2010 and the first list came out in 2015. So it's still relatively young imprint, but it doesn't feel like there are any growing pains or any, um, any startup hiccups at all. It just, it, it feels so it, it's a, it's a lovely company. There are lovely people to work with and I'm, I'm so happy. Um, this is a, so, so in, in the further annals of my, my, my unusual path to publication, I mean, I was following all the right steps that you are advised to take. Um, but even so, there are, there are occasional strange moments along the way. Um, when we submitted the, um, the, Mur the, first book, the first Myrtle book, Premeditated Myrtle, um, Aaron had a list, my agent, Agent Aaron had a list of several publishers that and editors, several editors that she'd worked with that she thought might be a good match um, for the Myrtle books. So, so Cheryl, so Cheryl, as the editorial director of Lee and Lowe, Lee and Lowe publishes multicultural books um, exclusively. So, so we knew we wouldn't be working with Cheryl again because she had moved on to sort of a different, an entirely different sort of book than what I, what I was writing. Um, so Erin had a list of particular editors she was interested in submitting to, but she also put out a post on or a tweet on Twitter that said, so excited to have this Miss Fisher style mystery series for tweens. And apparently Elise was walking down, this sounds dangerous, but she was walking down a street in Manhattan with her iPhone and reading this and immediately tweeted, yes, yes, send it to me, me, me. And so she is ultimately um, the, she's, she's been a, a champion behind um, Myrtle as a series from the very beginning. And that was sort of what, what really sold me on, on working with her. And what uh, Aaron so I sold a book on Twitter is basically the, <laughs> the yes. part of that. And what Aaron tweeted out is something that's often talked about in the writing world, which is you have to have a, a hook and you have to be able to sum up that hook in a sentence. And, and that hook then will help determine if you're the right fit for someone. And so Aaron brilliantly created a hook, tweeted it out, and it, it hooked the right person. And those are not easy no, <laughs> that, is, that is one of the things that um, so so this is where, you know, some kind of real um, college course in this would not go amiss <laughs> would be, you know, how to really um, 
nail all those those ephemeral parts of your submission process, how to write a great hook, how to write a great synopsis, um, how to, you know, you know what goes into a, a really good pitch. And that's something that I really enjoy doing. We've done, we've done local workshops here um, that we like to call pitching practice, where we bring people in um, who are going to be doing these meets with their, um, with prospective editors and agents, where you need to have your elevator pitch, which um, if this is a term that is new to anyone in your audience, this is, you are stuck in an elevator with an agent or an editor and you have exactly the the distance between the lobby and the floor the editor is getting off on to answer the question, what are you working on? And you need to be able to exactly sum up your story in like three sentences um, in a way that feels true to the heart of what you're writing and also sounds catchy enough um, to pique somebody's interest. And that, that is harder than writing an entire novel, frankly. But it is hard. And, and the times when you have that opportunity, you're talking to somebody who's basically saturated. Yes. They've been at a children's book writing, or if it's in the adult writing world, they've been in an adult writing conference all day. They are trying to pace themselves. They know they're going to be there for three or four days. They know that that well-meaning writers are going to try to talk to them in the restroom and in the coffee line. And um, at the point when you can approach them, you have a person who's fairly saturated. And so it does have to be really interesting to break through the understandable brain fog that is occurring at the point when you see your opportunity to talk to this person. It may be when they're at their most exhausted. And so while I never actually had to personally um, pitch the Myrtle books um, at, at an event like that. I was really glad that um, I had had all those, all those pitching practice events where we talk about how to hone it, how to focus on those elements that are really, really essential. Um, and I think that, um, so, so we talk about this as, as a sales tool, but when I give writing workshops, I talk about it as a writing tool and how having that pitch ready, even when you start writing a book, can keep you focused on what it is you're trying to write. And um, so, so if you if it's sort of it might take a while while you're getting to know your characters and starting your starting your story. But eventually, before you finish the book, you should have a sense of what it is you're trying to write. And you should be able to articulate that in one or two quick sentences. So, so for Myrtle, um, mine was, it's a story about a 12-year-old girl who is obsessed with the new Victorian sciences of criminology. When her neighbor dies under, air quotes, mysterious circumstances, she takes it upon herself to prove that it was Myrtle sorry, murder and solve the crime. And then I would follow up with, and it's called premeditated Myrtle. And if I do say so myself, that's a great elevator pitch. That's a solid, catchy, it it encompasses all of the the important parts that you need. You've got your main character, your setting, your conflict. um, And the, the biggest blessing of these, these books was that that 
fantastic title that that I was lucky enough to hit on. So, um, and and that's something any writer can learn how to do for their own work. And I think both as a selling tool and as a writing tool, it's an invaluable skill to have. And it probably works just as well for academic writing if you're if you're trying to publish an article on the latest um, COVID research that you've done or or what have you. It might not be quite, quite as crucial when you're writing the drug policy for a trucking company, but, you know, not, not at all a bad skill to have to learn how to compress um, 100,000 words into 25 words. And it can also be useful, especially for someone like you who has a writing community, who has a supportive partner at home, to, before you give them their pitch, if they've read your work, say, what would you say the pitch is? Um, I know with my own critique group, we do that. And it's really helpful if the whole group is giving you a pitch that is not the pitch that you would say. It, it can help us relook at our own work. Like, are the things that I think are the strongest threads really what is most engaging for the for the reader? Do I, you know, there's there can be a usefulness in asking someone else to do the pitch for you and see how close that matches to what you would actually want to say. And, and that kind of feedback, having somebody um, who thinks like a writer and can speak to you in, in writer terms is really um, because, as you say, this is a solitary craft and you're not in the same room with your coworkers. Um, you don't always have somebody to bounce the ideas off of and, and having another person who um, sees your work differently. And th this is, um, is, is, really valuable. And that's, again, why I say also helpful that your critique group might write different genres, different types of writing than you do, because those multiple perspectives um, are, are, you can't buy that. And you can't, you can't ask for, and, and this, this is where we, we can start to touch on the idea of um, inclusion in writing and inclusion in a writing community and diversity and um, hearing more voices. Those things only make us stronger. So hearing, you, you don't want to muddy, muddy the soup um, of your writing with too many extraneous opinions, but knowing who to listen to and when and opening yourself up to hearing input from people who are not you, who are not exactly like you, um, can show you richer, newer, more interesting avenues to take your writing in, um, which is going to help you grow as a writer and um, improve your craft, which is particularly valuable when you are writing for young readers, especially who... who need to have those windows opened for them. And can you unpack for us the terms windows and mirrors when we're talking about children's writing? So this is a term that you hear a lot from people in the children's literature community, maybe not always from people on the writing and publishing side, but you will hear it constantly if you talk to enough teachers and librarians and you listen to them talk about engaging young readers and finding 
um, a path to help young young readers grow and 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 making a, a community of young readers. Um, children, all kinds of kids, all kinds of readers need all kinds of books. And when we talk about books that are windows and mirrors for young readers, we mean books that either show them a new aspect of life that they haven't been exposed to before, or a book that reflects back their own experiences. And so for many years, um, too many years, the world of children's literature was largely full of mirrors to the white middle-class American experience. And um, there has been a very strong push in recent years, finally, to have more mirrors, own voices books written by people with different backgrounds than white middle-class Americans to come and write stories that represent mirrors into um, other races' experiences, other communities, LGBTQ um, kids. And those are vital for young readers to see themselves. Um, We were talking beforehand, if you can't see it, you don't know that you can be it. So, um, and so the, the idea of having, we need diverse books for diverse readers. We need those books that represent the lives of all of the kids in our communities. Um, not only so those readers can see themselves represented in stories, but so all readers can see the lives and the experiences of people who are not just like them. Um, I was always a Windows reader. I wanted, I was not in the remotest sense interested in reading about other middle, excuse me, middle-class white Midwestern kids. Um, So I've never been a big contemporary reader fan, but if you handed me, or a contemporary fiction fan or reader, but if you handed me historical fiction or fantasy or um, something that took place in another country, I always wanted to know more about what it was like to live in another place, as another person, in another culture, in another time. Um, And because there are all sorts of readers, we need all of our kids' books to reflect um, as much of the world as as possible, and especially um, with the the diversity of our nation um, is increasing, and the publishing industry has been slow to keep pace with that, and so um, now we are opening more and more doors, not just to writers of color and um, but also the gatekeepers, the agents, the editors, the um, the sales staff, the marketing people, the the decision makers in in the publishing industry, and that's also when we talk about um, self publishing being more of an avenue for um, more writers to get in on the game. And all of these voices, those are those are good things. Those are Im- important to have those all of these voices be heard. 
one of the other things that um, you do with your book is you are responsive to the fact that some kids read up. There's um, some kids need high low books. They need high interest uh, topics, but their reading level is um, gauged at being below their grade level, which is a concept that is a bit controversial among teachers because kids read at the level they read at, and it's not really pegged to age or grade, but, but that's what a high low is. And then there's the idea of kids reading up where they're, they're young, but they love a dense meaty book and they often then are reading a YA book when they're, you know, an eight-year-old. And so while they're capable of reading a three or 400 page book, the themes of a YA book are aimed at the life experiences that would resonate with the teenager. And so the premeditated Myrtle books respond to that need that kids who are reading up, they're dense, they have footnotes, they have asterisks, they have phrases in Latin. Can you talk about uh, why you were drawn to creating books for kids that are reading up? So, so I was, if you've read anything I've ever written, it's probably pretty clear that I was that kid that read up. Um, And one of the stories that I like to tell is um, we lived in Ecuador for some time when I was a kid. And um, I didn't, speak a lot of Spanish at the time. And we were voracious readers and very quickly moved through the very small shelf of books on the American Consulate English Library. And and not to mention the very few books that we could fit in our own luggage when we, when we moved down. Um, and so we ran out of things to read. And everyone in the, the small expat community was reading, um, so it was 1984, and the hot book of the time um, that everyone was reading was Clan of the Cave Bear. And all of the adults in the community read it, and then my parents let my brother, who was, um, so I was, I was, I turned 10 when we lived there. And so my brother was um, 13, so he read Clan of the Cave Bear, and I, the book was 800 pages long, and I was, I just the idea of having that many pages in English available to read. I begged and begged and begged. Um, and finally they relented and I read Clan of the Cave Bear when I was 10. I read it again when I was in college and an anthropology major and thought, okay, maybe this isn't a book I would now hand a 10 year old. Um, so not, so, so, Taking that experience um, combined with my experience as an author, I was writing, I've been writing, I do write um, YA fantasy. And my books were trending darker and more violent and a little sexier. But I was getting all this fan mail from fifth and sixth graders. All of these kids who were reading Curse and Starcrossed and Liar's Moon and really responding to the um, the density of the prose and the complexity of the themes and the rich world building and all of the things that I do well as a writer, but they're 10 and 11 years old and I wasn't writing books with 10 and 11 year olds in mind. I was writing about 16 and 18 year old characters and I thought I need to write a book, books for these kids 
that meet them where they're at. And so when when kids read up, they're you you answered the 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 question beautifully when you asked it. Um, we often think about the fact that when kids read up, they're being exposed to themes or content that maybe we don't want. Maybe we don't want our 10-year-olds reading about um, the sexual lives of Neanderthals. And but, but more important to me in that respect is exactly what you said. Even if a kid is reading up and enjoying a book that is an adult book or a YA book, those books aren't for them. They're not about them. And regardless of the mature content, the stories don't feature them. And so I love the idea of writing a story, um, you know, with, with a really high reading level and that expects a lot from the reader and that, that um, tells the reader, you are smart enough to read this. You are smart. I trust you to, to follow what's going on, even if maybe you don't read Greek. Um, you're, you're still, I have enough respect for you as a reader to hand this to you and say, this is for you. And um, so, so that's really what I was, I had those readers in mind with the Myrtle books. And um, in fact, they also resonate really well with adult readers, um, which makes them great books for families to share. You know, you can sneak it off your kid's nightstand or, um, if you've found it and read it and say, maybe you, you've been a fan of the Flavia Deleuze books um, and you read this and you say, well, here's a book that I can give my 10 year old and not, not worry about um, that. It's, it's not going to matter to, to a younger reader. They also would make great family read alouds. I came from a family where um, talking about the books that we read was um something that we did and also uh, reading aloud uh, as part of family time, but finding a book that would meet the interest of different, different ages, frankly, um, can be challenging. But these books, I think, check all those boxes. So I had um, somebody posted this to me on Facebook, which I just was the most delightful thing. She and her mother during the pandemic have been getting together on Zoom every Sunday and reading to each other. And um, she said How to Get Away with Myrtle um, was going to be their very next book. I thought, well, how fun is that? That's a, a great thing for people to add to their pandemic to-do list when they're, you know, out of the will to make any more sourdough bread. They can they can do Zoom weekend Zoom family reading time. Um in the few minutes that we have left, I was wondering what you're working on now. Your publisher sent me um, Premeditated Myrtle and then the next book, How to Get Away with Myrtle. And since it's a series, I was wondering, are you working on what comes after How to Get Away with Myrtle? So so we have um, almost wrapped up book three, Cold-Blooded Myrtle, which is a, uh, a Christmas mystery about a cold case that Myrtle and Miss Judson solve. And um, I know our, our listeners cannot see the gorgeous covers, but I have just gotten a glimpse of the sketch of Brett Helquist's sketch for the cover of um, 
book three and it is glorious. I am so excited. They have made um, a little, an incredible addition to um, the, the cover that I think responds to sort of um, fan reactions. And, and I just can't wait to share that. And right now I am um, just in the thick of book four, which is In Myrtle Peril. And um, that's what we have scheduled so far. And I've told my agent um, and my editor that really I would be happy writing Myrtle Hardcastle Mysteries for the rest of my career. And my editor has said, yes, I want you on the, on the porch of the retired author's home typing away writing Myrtle Mysteries. So hopefully... Um, We've had such a tremendous response from fans and readers um, and from booksellers. Um, Premeditated Myrtle was an indie next pick, which was a huge honor for me. Um, and it's also been named one of Amazon's top 20 children's books of the year. So um, hopefully those, those will translate into, um, you know, the the less fun side of the writing life, um, good sales, which feed your opportunity to keep doing um, what it is you love. I have had um, fans still write to me asking when the third um, Thief Errant book, um, Star Cross Liar's Moon, we were originally planning um, three or four books in that series and um, the sales did not, did not justify um, Scholastic picking more up. So um, hopefully we're having such a tremendous response for the Myrtle books um, because I think of that, that sort of, they have, despite being for a higher reading level and having all the quirky, nerdy bits, the, the footnotes and the untranslated Greek and all the legal Latin, um, they, they do seem to have a pretty wide universal appeal. And um, hopefully that will translate into many more Myrtle mysteries that I will get to write. And I will never, ever be able to say the word murder again. I hope that there will be many more Myrtle books to come. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Elizabeth. We've been talking about the craft of writing and the book Premeditated Myrtle. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host, and I hope you will please join us again.